Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Dr. Sarah Abiola, uh, who is an assistant professor of health policy and management at the Columbia Mailman School of Public Health and co-director of the Better Health Systems Lab that analyzes law, policy, and technological innovations designed to facilitate health system strengthening and transformation through multi-sector collaboration and integration. She has constructed legal databases to map non-communicable disease prevention policy and food policy at the global and national level and currently explores statutory and regulatory mechanisms to integrate the delivery of health and social services to address inequality and the social determinants of health. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, So I want to start with our pressing need today. In a recent article, you say hunger is growing in America in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. Families who have never experienced food insecurity have a sudden need for nutritional assistance and food banks are definitely struggling. So the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, I guess it's formerly known as a food stamp program, uh, will see record high numbers of new applicants in coming weeks. Uh, You also mentioned that a recent survey found that nearly one out of every five mothers with kids 12 or younger uh, said their children are not getting enough to eat. In my view, these are issues that, uh, you know, we typically see in a third world country and not in a developed area. Um, You have some ideas uh, as to how to perhaps supplement the program to help us pull through the, the disaster situation we are in today. Yeah, so I think that uh, in some ways we have to think about this in the context of how the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program came to be and how we've changed and expanded the program over time to deal with demands that have uh, come up on a national level uh, over the past 50 to 60 years, in fact. So I think that right now, 
we're thinking about this as being even worse than, for example, the Great Recession uh, in 2008. And at that time, the uh, solution uh, to dealing with increases in unemployment, increased unemployment, and by extension, increased food insecurity, was increasing the maximum allotment under the SNAP program such that families could get more food assistance. They could essentially purchase more uh, food for their families, depending on household size. Yeah. And so this is really important, uh, just number one, because we know that recipients of the benefit will immediately use that money to buy food. So it's not a benefit that people uh, hold on to. And so they're both addressing the issue of food insecurity in that capacity. And you're also putting money back into the economy uh, very quickly, which is one of the uh, ways in which SNAP also helps to really uh, boost a, a kind of a slowing economy, which is also what we're seeing right now in the midst of a COVID pandemic. So I think that's, we have some kind of relatively recent uh, reference points where we can say just increasing the access through uh, increasing access to food through increasing the amount of money is important. But then we also have administrative aspects of the program that can be changed that will make it easier for people who have never used the benefit uh, to gain access to it. And that's really, I think, what we're facing when it comes to the pandemic. So even if there's current households that we give more money to, we still yeah. have to account for the fact that there are people who have never had to use the benefit who will be met with a kind of a administrative maze, if you will, if they've never dealt with a public program before. So doing things like um, doing intake interviews over the phone, uh, kind of diminishing the burden of paperwork in terms of the types of documents that have to be produced in order to demonstrate that you qualify for the program, uh, extending verification periods for existing households so that they don't have to go through the very daunting process of producing the documents that are you know, required to demonstrate that they still qualify based on income. Those are a few of the things that I think are uh, important at this moment. And we've seen some states already make moves in that direction. In fact, a majority of states have actually uh, already adopted some of those access easing measures. So I think that the critical conversation when it comes to thinking about the role of this particular public policy is just making it accessible to people who have never really had to engage with government programs in any significant way before. Yeah. And so SNAP is uh, administered by states. So so its implementation differs from state to state? Yes, it does. Mm -hmm. And what, what's the rationale behind that? I mean, it shouldn't this be more of a federally, um, at least the, the, the policy should be more uniform, right? So I think that SNAP actually um, is a good example of having relatively strong federal guidelines and standardization at the federal level, which is something that has evolved over time. And, and so we can kind of look at how that, you know, you know, has panned out in terms of areas where we are very comfortable with how SNAP looks and areas where we might feel like it could improve. But generally speaking, it is actually compared to other um, kind of social services or, you know, public policies. It is actually pretty solid at the federal level the administrative component that happens at the state level um, is, it does still kind of provide a certain level of discretion for states, but it doesn't kind of provide discretion in areas that we tend to think are really um, maybe central to how people can actually get the benefits. So it's, of course, it's an entitlement benefit. So if you 
if you qualify for yeah. it, you're going to get it. It doesn't matter, you know, whether or not the state has allocated a certain amount in the budget uh, for, you know, SNAP or not. If you qualify, you'll get the benefit, unlike some other programs, uh, you know, WIC, for example, where you uh, may qualify, but if the budget doesn't allow, you're not necessarily going to be able to access the benefit. So in that way, SNAP is, I think, relatively consistent. I think what we look at as being the areas for improvement tend to deal with how state agencies are thinking about engaging with the public when it comes to, um, or engaging with their their kind of citizens when it comes to uh, enrolling in the program. So the local agencies might have their own rules, um, their own hours of operation, their own kind of standard practices that would make it uh, less uh, likely for people to be able to uh, access the benefit. So for example, local offices might indicate that children are not allowed to come to the office during certain hours which might make it difficult for those who do have children um, to come to the office and kind of go through the enrollment process because they don't have access to childcare at that time, for example. So there are things that are happening on the local level that are certainly relevant to like conversations around how we're going to make sure that uh, as many people as possible have access to it. Some local agencies don't have the technology in place to kind of transition to doing telephone intake or doing kind of verification online or over the phone or to do online um, activities as well. So those are the types of things that I think are really, um, the implementation components are, are do still really vary at the state level, but some of the things around the benefits themselves are relatively standardized. Okay, so when, when you said paperwork, mm-hmm. you actually mean paper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. I mean, we, we have all these technologies around us now. Shouldn't we be transitioning? I mean, that that is, you know, one of the first things one would one should look at, right? Mm-hmm. To make make the process, simplify the process, increase access. Um, otherwise, if we, you know, I don't know too much about the process, but if we don't do that, people who need access to it uh, the most would be uh, left out left out of the process sometimes right? oh absolutely and this is this is an excellent point this is actually you know very much as kind of the cutting edge of what uh, I think those who are concerned about how technology and uh, you know kind of data and our ability to harness you know large quantities of information using uh, you know relational databases and things like that you can absolutely try to make it a much friendly friendlier user experience. Uh, and there are entities and kind of groups that have already tried to experiment with integration of benefits, not just from the perspective of um, saying that you're gonna kind of combine different types of, of benefits into a single uh, program, but we're also going to make the user experience much more integrated, meaning I just get onto an app I kind of enter the income information, the information about my assets, you know, think about it, you know, in essence, let's say you're kind of applying for a loan or something like that. I can enter these uh, data points into an app and through that very easy experience on my cell phone, I can then uh, determine the eligibility for a number of different programs can be determined at one time. And I can be kind of guided through the process of enrolling in those programs through that on through that application. So there's absolutely um, a segment of the population that would benefit from that uh, type of 
uh, advancement in terms of moving away from paper. And yeah. we need to continue to move in that direction, especially with what's happening now with fewer and fewer people being able to, I think, meet the actual paperwork <laughs> requirements. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. You also mentioned um, a provision called pandemic EBT or PEBT mm-hmm. uh, that some states are pursuing. Uh, what exactly is that and what are the advantages and disadvantages? Right. So the pandemic EBT um, is a form of support that's designed to address the potential hunger needs that will arise when children who otherwise would have gotten food through the uh, National School Lunch Program, uh, they are no longer getting that meal because their school has been closed due to the pandemic. Um, and it could be, you know, other meals as well, breakfast, for example. So the goal there is to replace the meal that they're essentially losing by not going to school um, with the benefit that will allow uh, the family to be able to uh, uh, kind of, you know, feed the, the child that's eligible in the household. And so the, you know, construct there is, is kind of trying to identify children who are eligible for school lunch, free and reduced cost uh, meals, and uh, giving them the benefit either through extending the existing SNAP um, uh, enrollment or through giving them a a very specific card that's designed just to cover uh, the ability to get the, the meals that they missed at school. Okay, okay. I want to shift to um, sort of a larger problem here. So in a recent article, you say that it is possible to change the way that the U.S. provides means-tested financial support while building an infrastructure that will uplift small business owners, reinvigorate local and state economies, and produce a more skilled, energized American workforce across all income levels. And you propose a new um, a program, you call it the STAR, STAR program or SSTAR. And uh, it's about Employment, Social Services, Technology and Administrative Restructuring Act. Uh, and so you start, you start with employment and then have these four supporting sectors um, to, to, uh, to get that individual to a much more um, sustainable position, I would say, food, housing, education, transportation. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk a bit more about that? Sure. Um, so I think that, you know, the COVID pandemic has brought a lot of things to our attention in terms of the shortcomings of our current uh, health and social services systems. And we're at a moment where we're really, I think, trying to figure out how public policy and social policy in particular kind of plays into this conversation around health. And we do know um, that uh, in many ways, uh, kind of good uh, uh, kind of economic policy um, or, you know, good good health policy in essence uh, can be a form of, of good economic policy. Um, it's going to be important for reinvigorating the country like we uh, mentioned in the piece, but the question becomes, what does that look like and how do we actually get people into the types of uh, positions they need to be in in order to really reap the benefits of kind of uh, employment, education, uh, housing, et cetera. And so as we were just saying a few moments ago when it comes to kind of thinking about the paperwork requirement and how do people actually engage with these programs, it's much more um, 
likely that we'll see the benefit of having kind of good social policy if it's easier for people to access uh, that benefit. And so the construct behind the STAR program is simply that we take all of the kind of uh, public policy uh, uh, kind of programs and we put them into a single interface that yeah. allows for uh, a centralized administration on the, on the kind of back end and on the front end, the experience that Americans have is that we have a single card that has all of the potential benefits that we may need to use in one place. So instead of having to have food stamps, having to have something else for, you know, um, welfare, having something else for housing, having something else, you know, if you have a voucher uh, to, you know, to cover the cost of housing, something else, if you need to kind of cover the cost of uh, just meeting basic, you know, uh, meeting basic needs through something like TANF, for example, conditional yeah. cash transfers, you have it all centralized. And essentially, it's, it's kind of a debit card, if you will, uh, that gets a monthly allotment of benefit in the same way that you get for food stamps. But instead of just having it for food stamps, it would be every potential benefit that you're eligible for on a single card. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a great way to think about it, right? Ultimately, what we care about is the outcome for the individual. Mm -hmm. And you know, it seems to me that we have a lot of programs that tend to be very highly segmented and managed by different organizations that don't talk to each other. And, you know, you add to that the complication of paperwork, and that needs to be done for each one of them. Um, many people are going to fall through the cracks. So your suggestion here is to say, let's let's take the individual and let's figure out you know, those categories that, that the individual may need some help mm -hmm. and, and look at it, look at it from, from the individual's perspective. You know, it's not applying for A, B, C, and D separately. It, it's really how do I utilize all the available resources in an optimum fashion so that I can, I can get the best outcome, right? Absolutely. Absolutely, Gil. And that's what it's really about the individual being able to, uh, maximize their uh, kind of ability to uh, take advantage of what the U.S. government has to offer in a way that is also very much destigmatized, right? Because not only is kind of paperwork a barrier to people using certain types of benefits, but there's this notion that in some ways you should feel guilty or ashamed of the fact that you're uh, taking advantage of of government programs that offer assistance for these basic needs, when in fact what we're proposing is that every person should simply have a a star card. They should simply have a card upon which benefits could be loaded. Or, as a, we're seeing with the COVID pandemic, if there's a, a time in which the government needs to get benefits to all Americans or to the majority of uh, citizens, it can do that using the same structure because every person has one. So it's no longer this sense of like. I have this because I'm poor and I can't support myself, but it's more so I have this because my government is concerned about making sure that all individuals have the tool they need uh, to gain access to these programs. And so with the kind of COVID pandemic, we've already seen some of the ways in which government agencies can communicate, can, you know, there's some level of interoperability between their data sets such that they can do these um, assessments about eligibility on the back end without someone having to necessarily apply for multiple different programs um, on, you know, when they, when they're kind of initially trying to engage with the system. So I think the concept is really rooted in the reality that we have the data to do this. 
And we just need to kind of create the systems that would connect that information for, right. yeah, for the government. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you talk about this in the paper, Sarah, but mm-hmm. um, from a policy perspective, I want to get your view on this. So, you know, we could think about this problem uh, sort of bottoms up uh, from a needs based needs based, um, you know, needs basis, I should say. Um, and, and we need to do that because we need to move incrementally uh, in the positive direction. But you could also look at it, you know, potentially from a transformational perspective. So, that, you know, there are ideas around um, minimum basic income mm-hmm. that, you know, in advanced society, I should say, um, should be thinking about, you know, it, it's it's not. Uh, so needs for me is a very tactical view. Uh, it's just like in healthcare, you know, you you treat diseases uh, much after the disease has actually set in, and and then you spend enormous amount of time and money uh, to take care of it. And we don't spend enough in preventative areas of healthcare. Analogously, here at the individual level. You know, one could argue maybe we can move away from needs and move to more, uh, more structured view. You know, uh, individual uh, basically takes care of himself or herself, given a set of basic resources. Uh, what, what's your view on that? And when we're talking about those things, we are trying to look at it through the lens of prevention which is at the core, I think, of what you're expressing at the core of the field of public health, which is to say, how can I prevent people from getting as sick um, or from getting sick at all, right, would be ideal. And so if we know that the kind of long-term burden associated with poverty, okay, going back to this point about need, if we know that the kind of the long-term health effect of living in poverty is that you're more likely to get sick. And when you do get sick, you're more likely to have a worse outcome because the kind of just accumulated stress, uh, the kind of allostatic you know, load, the way in which you've had to kind of um, manage resources to account for the fact that you don't have everything that you need at any given time. Um, the kind of, you know, with the pandemic, the kind of conversation around who gets to work from home and who doesn't, those types of things have been revealed, but those are magnified you know, many times over, over the course of many years, uh, whether there's a pandemic or not, right? So I think yeah. that understanding that the people who are in poverty are, are living in a very different, uh, they're living in a very different world and one that has a lot of uh, negative consequences for health. If we can change those circumstances, if we can improve the quality of housing, if we can improve the ability to, uh, you know, gain access to nutritious food, if we can improve the ability uh, to gain access to, uh, you know, the kind of transportation that you need to get to your job to make sure that you have enough money to, you know, continue to pay for your your food and housing, for example, all of these things are interconnected. And so for those who are living um, on the kind of financial edge, if you will, in very precarious positions, having a true social safety net, right? One where, you know, we're saying people don't just kind of slip through, but you know that it's actually there to support you at any given time would make a tremendous difference. So I think, you know, one of the things that we were fascinated by when we started talking about this project was the fact that kind of dealing with um, kind of repair of one's vehicle is one of the, the main barriers that certain people have when it comes to uh, getting to work. So if your car breaks down, you can't afford to, to fix it. What do you do? And so that's why one of the 
innovations are one of the things that would be, I think, meaningful is to say, well, you can use a benefit. You can use your star card, for example, to pay for auto repairs, right? Something that we might think is very benign or it's not, you know, that big of a deal. But if your car doesn't work and you can't get to it, to your job, that's a very big deal. And so I think these are the types of needs that people have that we don't necessarily put easily into a bucket when we think about food stamps versus, you know, welfare versus, um, you know, conditional cash transfer. But these are the, the struggles that people are having that are wearing on their health over the years and leading to higher rates of mortality um, and greater degrees of sickness. Right. Yeah. You know, as you say, the accumulated stress mm -hmm. is not something that um, that we think about. Right. And, you know, so, so, for example, in behavioral health and physical health, you know, we treat those um, those diseases uh, completely separately. And there is, you know, very robust data that tells you that if you have behavioral health issues, you're ultimately going to get into physical health in the future. Uh, but, but the system that we have um, doesn't allow those things to be treated together. You know, it's all, most of these policies uh, in place is really about segmenting uh, the needs of an individual into neatly um, neatly packaged um, solutions uh, and, and really uh, forget about everything else that might uh, that might go with it. <laughs> you no, know, it's true. And the thing about it is we and the history of that, I think, is what we have to keep in mind. And, you know, I think for you coming from a business background, this might be um, more in your wheelhouse. But, you know, looking at it from the public health perspective, what we often talk about is the fact that um, you know, for example, medical professionals, doctors play a, a kind of large role in how some of the systems that we currently experience are set up, right? Yeah. So in some ways, you know, when we think about why do we have these silos and why are things kind of, you know, in these uh, very disconnected, um, you know, infrastructures, there's a professional interest that's being protected that's been kind of reinforced by policy, right? So when we talk about the policy approaches, we know that we've used policy to protect professions and to kind of create spaces for certain, uh, you know, organizations to kind of operate exclusively. And so what you're sometimes attempting to do, and, you know, we've looked at some of this and work that we've done on linking health and social services recently is to say, well, how do I create a language that allows medical professionals to be integrated into a payment system with non-medical professionals? So, you know, medical professionals have created the entire system of billing for their services. And now yeah. to our earlier point about trying to think about things that are not necessarily medical services, but have an equally large impact on health. How do I create some sort of continuity that allows me to pay for the services that are being offered by, um, you know, social workers or that are being offered by uh, people who, you know, provide non-emergency transportation or by people who provide nutritious food, right? There's so many other sectors that are outside of, of, of health that we think about as being relevant, but we, you know, we don't pay them through Medicare. We don't pay them through Medicaid. Um, right. Yeah. And we have to think about why that is. And sometimes it has to do with the professional interests that are at stake. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, the sometimes you get what you measure, and that that is true in you know most fields. And I think there's a measurement problem here, which is you know, 
what is the outcome that we desire for the individual? Um, it is not maintaining, you know, um, better blood sugar levels. It's, you know, not reducing blood pressure. All of those could be, could be important, but there is a larger outcome that both the individual and society desire. But that outcome is not an objective function, typically, right? We have these tactical parameters we are trying to trying to optimize, and it's never never going to be, I believe, globally opt- optimum. Oh wow! Yeah. So, um, we right we have to think about intermediate outcomes, and we have to think yeah. about um, kind of you know our distal outcomes. You're absolutely right, and I think we see this a lot when we talk about things like obesity, for example. So what is it that I really need to be able to measure to quantify the effect of a particular policy or particular intervention? When if I look at things on a population level overall, I might find that obesity has not declined amongst children, right? So you start to ask, well, what can I look at to really see if there's progress that's been made? And do we have the right metrics in mind? Are we collecting the right data? And so we can certainly make statements about things that can work in the short term. And we can certainly measure the kind of quality of interventions designed to, let's say, for example, increase physical activity or increase water consumption or increase, you know, fruit or vegetable consumption over the short term. But in the longer kind of view of what you're suggesting, how do we quantify um, health in a way that is responsive to what we're thinking about from a social policy perspective, we would have to reference things like the moving to opportunity experiment, for example, um, and other types of manipulations that look at much more long-term outcomes relative to increased uh, kind of economic opportunity. Yeah, yeah. I want to dig a little deeper into, uh, you mentioned obesity and you Mm -hmm. you have a recent article uh, you call multi-level legal approaches to obesity prevention, mm-hmm. a conceptual and methodological toolkit. And um, you have a framework there that allows for classification of obesity prevention laws, which I guess is uh, uh, disparate laws uh, you know, mm-hmm. in all, all, all different domains, uh, maybe, maybe with good intentions, but uh, perhaps with, um, uh, with uh, un, you know, unclear uh, outcomes you know, mm-hmm. um, regarding BMI and, and obesity prevention in general. Could you talk a little bit about, uh, and I think you looked at a large amount of data, so obesity prevention laws for all 50 states and DC. Mm-hmm. What, did you, what did you find? Absolutely. So I think that the kind of big takeaway from that very big data collection effort, which it, it was, um, you know, kind of, you know, just phenomenal at the time in terms of the breadth of of data that we were trying to collect is really the idea that there tends to be kind of certain types of policies that are very easily adopted, typically with very limited or unclear evidence as to um, how well they might work. So for example, things like increasing uh, walk and bike paths within a community or um, trying to create more green space or trying to uh, create more farmers markets uh, in a given community. Those types of manipulations, um, you know, policy manipulations tend to be quite common, and we saw those pretty frequently across states. But when we got into the the policies that we know from things like uh, 
you know, work with tobacco, for example, that really tend to change consumer behavior, things like taxes, okay, uh, and very significant taxes on sugar-sweetened beverages, for example, or attempting to really um, uh, provide individual level uh, uh, resources that would help to, you know, change eating behavior. Those were, were kind of notably absent, right? So yeah. the very strong policy mechanisms, the ones that we would tend to think would be the most effective, given what we know about behavior change and health-related behavior change, were absent. And even now, um, they are still lagging behind. We've seen a mm. few cities, Berkeley, Philadelphia, and others try to take up where states have really not been able to step in and try to discourage consumer behavior um, of certain types of goods, right? Uh, Sugar-sweetened beverages being the, the classic one. But essentially, the idea here is we can do a lot of different things to try to get people to eat healthier and move more. But if we truly want to, uh, I think, see significant change, it, we suggest that we have to really focus on the policies that actually do change behavior that will move consumers, especially consumers who are very price sensitive. So, you know, increasing the cost of sodas, increasing the mm. cost of um, sugary snacks, uh, salty snacks, et cetera, would, would decrease their purchase, uh, the extent to which people would purchase those goods. So I, I think that we are moving into a narrative where we start to understand that obesity is not really an issue that should be viewed through the lens of um, purely personal accountability, whereby, you know, you just need to kind of learn how to restrict your calories and you would be fine. But rather, we have to understand that the kind of food system in which we operate, the way in which food comes to us, in many ways, is outside of our control, <laughs> unless, you know, you, right. you're kind of growing a garden in your backyard. Um, and so people are making choices that are very rational based on their financial situation. And so if uh, kind of very sugary, salty, high fat, high calorie snacks are cheap, then that is what they will purchase. Uh, and that in turn will have consequences for their for obesity in particular and overall health in general. So how do we change the incentives for people? Certainly we can uh, make it more difficult to purchase things that are less healthy and we can make it easier to purchase things that are uh, more healthy. But we, we have to have that kind of punishment mechanism too, or the kind of notion of not just making it easier to purchase vegetables and fruits, but also making it more difficult to purchase things that are, um, you know, leading to obesity that, that kind of contribute to that outcome. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, obesity, I don't know the exact numbers, but maybe responsible for close to half the healthcare costs in the system, mm -hmm. uh, because it has, you know, negative um, effect on a lot of different diseases. Um, and, and so if you think about this, and, you know, if it's driven by uh, food choices, uh, it's driven by the, the economics, the individual is trying to, trying to maximize. If you invest there, essentially prevent it by not just treating the symptoms, but treat it, treat, you know, attempting to treat the underlying conditions, you know, which is, uh, it might be uh, information, it might be economics, it might be other things. Um, you you could have a huge impact on the on the back end cause mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. of that individual's health, right? Mm-hmm. And again, you know, go back to the segmented policymaking problem, which mm-hmm. is, you know, we, we just look at how to minimize healthcare costs after having seen the problem, but we don't have a mechanism to say, suppose, suppose I want to reduce the problem by a variety of actions I could take um, at, the, at the inception, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's no agency in charge of that. There are no incentives in the system, like you say, for that to happen. And so we are still, you know, sort of treating the symptoms, not the underlying disease. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we are, our healthcare system is uh, designed uh, and excels at taking care of kind of acute situations, right? There's an acute kind of healthcare issue. Uh, we are, in fact, you know, quite good, generally speaking, at being able to deal with that. So if you have a broken leg, you know, um, we can deal with that, right? You know, all things being equal, let's say you have access to a, a good healthcare, you know, yeah. provider, right? We can deal with those types of things. And even if, um, you know, something more severe, you know, let's say you need dialysis, which is a terrible situation to be in, but our system does support that type of, of long-term care and treatment. But let's say you, you want to avoid ever having to have dialysis, right, which is kind of part of this conversation around um, obesity and kind of chronic disease. And it's a larger conversation about really what we're touching on is chronic diseases, lifestyle diseases. And right. how do we um, how do we kind of step back from the abyss that we're on because of, of how commonplace NCDs are becoming and the extent to which NCDs, um, chronic diseases really dwarf the impact of of infectious diseases, even in the face of a pandemic, obviously with the one that we're experiencing now because of the economic devastation, it can't be minimized, but truly chronic diseases, non-communicable diseases in particular um, are really at the core of what's kind of draining the system. And so prevention, as you suggested, is a focus that we we were moving towards that under the, uh, the Affordable Care Act, under the ACA, we were moving in that direction through kind of initial investments in prevention and trying to engage communities, community-based health workers and other community organizations in the process of educating those who would kind of need the type of, um, you know, support necessary to really kind of prevent long-term, you know, chronic conditions in the future, trying to give them access to those resources. However, it was, nothing kind of really compared to how much would need to be invested to truly get to the core of of what's causing a lot of these diseases. Lack of information, lack of access to healthy food, lack of access to uh, good housing uh, and education, Uh, the kind of inability to kind of continue to move forward uh, economically as a result of having uh, received a solid education. That in fact is also a very, I think, critical component of the conversation as well uh, for chronic diseases. Yeah, yeah. So in closing, Sarah, mm-hmm. yeah, if you were to make one policy change uh, or decision in this area, what will it be? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Um, one policy change. And I'm, I'm thinking obesity specifically, you know, mm-hmm. so you, 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 you have seen all the laws mm-hmm. that, are, that are out there and, you know, some of them have some, some incremental effect. Uh, but I think uh, something like 30% of the country can can be considered obese and that be a my metric today. Mm-hmm. And uh, it continues to go up. So there appears to be a systemic problem. Is mm-hmm. there something that 
that you would you would do yeah. to, to at least reduce the growth of obesity in the country? So um, I would say, and certainly uh, any, any idea that's designed to change a whole system is going to be controversial. But I really think that we have to go after food manufacturers, food and beverage manufacturers in the same mm-hmm. way that we went after the tobacco industry when it was revealed that the products that they were selling were simply harmful to the public's health. There is really no other way to describe it. I think that there's no single policy initiative. Some people would say, well, we need to get rid of subsidies that support the overproduction of high fructose corn syrup and other Mm. products that go into food, right? I think that's one of the ways that people have tried to capture the idea, which is what I would espouse, is that we need to deconstruct the system of policies that supports and protects food beverage, uh, food and beverage manufacturers when they're making products that uh, do in fact harm the public's health. Yeah, yeah. I think the tobacco analogy is, uh, is an apt one because it is an addiction. Mm-hmm. And what these companies do uh, is just like tobacco companies did, mm-hmm. is, to, is to stimulate that addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you continue to, you know, uh, continue to consume more and more and you are in that cycle that you cannot really escape from. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And like we said before, people don't have control over the food that they're eating in the way that we did in this country, even maybe a hundred years ago, right? And even, you know, before the industrial revolution, people don't control what they're eating. And so to a certain extent to uh, say that, well, you just need to eat it in moderation or don't overconsume negates the extent to which these products have been created with the purpose of kind of uh, promoting overconsumption and addictive behaviors. And we have a good amount of brain science, you know, that we can point to that suggest how people respond to certain types of uh, flavor profiles and combinations. And so I think if we change what people are eating in general yeah. and the kind of entities that are producing the food that we find when we go to the grocery store, we would see a tremendous shift in not just obesity, but other chronic conditions as well. Right, right, Yeah. Let's be hopeful. Um, Sarah, this was great. I really appreciate the time that you spend with me. And uh, thanks for uh, everything that you do. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Gil, for doing this work. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm. Bye. Bye.